Journo at Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. This journo started her career in some of South Australia's most remote locations as a junior reporter for the ABC. This year, her relentless investigations were recognised with the award of South Australia's Journalist of the Year for the second year in a row. Angelique Donnellan's groundbreaking stories range from exposing abuse and mismanagement at the Oakden Nursing Home, sparking a government investigation and eventually its closure, to her reports on the pet food industry which led to a Senate inquiry. Angelique believes in the power of gut instinct and tells me on the Journo Project podcast how she would encourage all journalists to spend time nurturing and developing this undervalued resource in their quest to uncover stories that matter. Angelique, thank you very much for joining us on the streets of your town, the Journo Project. No problem, Zance. First, I should say congratulations, Journalist of the Year in South Australia for the second year running this year. I feel very lucky, I really do. It's lovely to be recognised. Very humbling experience. And tell us a bit about, maybe if we go from the beginning, had you always wanted to be a journalist? No. Um, I was one of these students um, going through high school, not too sure what I really wanted to do. My sister actually is a photographer with the advertising newspaper in Adelaide. Um, She's a bit older than me and when I was 15 or so she was still living at home and had been working at the advertiser for a little while and would come home with all these fantastic stories. Her life sounded so exciting. She was photographing the Premier one day, potentially going to a crime scene the next. It was just something that sounded absolutely fascinating and so dynamic. She was doing something different every day. And I guess I thought to myself, English, you know, I'm not, I, I don't write too badly. Um, this, you know, her life sounds so exciting. Maybe I'll give this journalism business a go. And so obviously applied at Year 12 and got into Bachelor of Arts Journalism at McGill University in Adelaide. And where did that take you from there? ABC straight away. One of these people who graduated and was lucky enough to get a position uh, with the ABC. I went for the cadetship uh, but missed out on the cadetship. And was that devastating for you at the time? It it was actually. Um, It's obviously very coveted position and it gives you a bit of a profile from the get-go as well. So it was disappointing to miss out but at the same time I feel privileged that they came to me and said you didn't get it but we'd like to give you an opportunity. So I started off with um, a few days a week just as a casual employee. Oh in Adelaide? In Adelaide and that was uh, yep that was definitely straight into the deep end Mm. because at the time the shift structure was a there was a two to ten shift and then there was an early shift five to one you'll remember that from your days as well and I got quite a few of the two to ten shifts which on the one hand you think you know terrible hours but on the other hand a lot of good stories would happen you know if there were any emergencies late at night and you get that exposure on the big 7:45 a.m bulletin in the morning that's right you're writing up the news stories for the next morning so it was actually a really great start and you had to learn quickly and fast and so I probably did that for about six months and then a position came up in Port Pirie 
which is two hours north of Adelaide. Uh, so I took that up and worked there for about six months. That was my, my first regional gig. And was that a big challenge for you to kind of go, actually, this is going to be good for me to go country? Yes, I knew I had to do it and it was the right thing to do. But having grown up in the city, lived with the family, um, it was scary. It really was. It was, it was daunting. I took the opportunity to come back to Adelaide most weekends, which was probably a little bit of a bad thing because I didn't get mm. as involved in the community as I should have. Maybe oh, it's very tempting when you're that close. Exactly. Mm. But Broken Hill, that's just not really possible. <laughs> it's a long way away. How far is it from there to Adelaide? About six hours. Ooh. Yeah. And so I flew back a couple of times. Um, but the thing about Broken Hill was that, you know, having come from a big city, you feel quite isolated. You know, it is. it does feel that it's in the middle of nowhere. And the thing that stuck with me the most as well was it was actually pretty much at the height of the drought last time. Mm-hmm. So things were very, very, very dry. And Mindy Lakes, which were obviously we're seeing all those problems now, the fish kill and the poor health of the darling, they were present back then. And I can remember just how how different it was to live in a place like that. You know, in a big city, you take water for granted. So it was my first real experience with just how hard it is for regional communities. And how long were you out there for? It was probably about eight months in Broken Hill. And then um, then I moved to Mount Gambier. So I got a good good taste of regional South Australia. And in a way, Broken Hill (laughs) is almost part of South Australia. I know, that's the odd thing, yes, for people who uh, aren't familiar with that setup. It's closer to Adelaide than Sydney, I suppose. It is closer to Adelaide, (laughs) yes. Does that rural experience, that regional rural experience, still inform your work now? 100%, yes. I wouldn't be the person I am today without that experience. And it was more of what I mentioned with the casual shifts. It was just straight into the deep end. You had a bulletin to put together each and every day and it was up to you to find stories. You know, a... I can't find stories is not good enough. You know, you can't have... The bulletin has to go to air. So you can't just get on at at 7 o'clock and say, nothing happened in Broken Hill yesterday? I'm really sorry. (laughs) No, you cannot, unfortunately. (laughs) And the good days were you'd make your phone calls and people would answer their phone straight away or ring you back promptly. The bad days were you sitting there nervous in the afternoon thinking, please call me back and having a slight panic attack. Um, It's funny, though you always got enough stories. You know, you, you always made it happen. And how did you make it happen, Angelique? Often people ask how we find stories and I think the rural experience is perhaps one of the most challenging aspects for that, isn't it? Because we don't get press releases out there. No, that is very true. Not many, anyway. No. <laughs> Probably one of the good things about regional communities is that they are tight-knit and everyone knows everyone. So take Broken Hill, for example, the head of the station there, Andrew Smith, he was very well connected. So it was very helpful to have him there. He put me in touch with the right people. And once you start getting to know people and know the issues, then you can kind of, you know, follow a story and and cover it, you know, over months. But I couldn't really tell you there's no hard and fast rules for finding stories. It's just open mind, read a lot um, Mm -hmm. of, you know, other media see if you can actually apply it to regional situations as well like for example you know maybe there's a story about employment in the big metropolitan newspaper and then you say well can I apply this you know what local angle can I find um so yeah you you just try and um yeah like I said open mind no real hard and fast rules at all because it must have been daunting going to three different communities where you really knew no one uh dare I say and and making contacts uh, in that area and 
I just wonder how that applies even to your investigative work now. Mm. Oh, exactly. Yeah, you, you really do start from scratch. Square one. Um, but, yeah, it, and it's... The advice I would give journalists starting out, and it was probably the best example is actually when I started state politics when I eventually came back to Adelaide, mm-hmm. is that I would look at the other political journos, and especially from the advertiser, and they'd have great front-page stories, you know, and you could tell that it was from a leak, you know, or, you know, some MPs told them something. And I just used to read them going, why can't I get these stories, you know? But we're talking about a journalist that had done, been in the press gallery for 30 years. That was Greg Kelton. And he was amazing. And it is a bit of a case of you've got to hang around a bit and you've got to, you know, get some runs on the board. And, you know, the longer you're in the profession, you might meet, a, um, you know, develop a contact, but you might not get that story initially, but they're going to be one that pays off eventually. So, yeah, it's, you know, don't be disheartened if you look at your colleague and they seem to have all these great contacts because you can't build up a rapport with people straight away. That's, that takes time. And you have to be real as well. You know, you can't be a fake person. You have to develop real relationships with people because at the end of the day, you can ring someone on the phone but they don't know who you are. Always have a coffee with someone. Face-to-face is always better. But you've got to build up that trust and you've got to make that person realise that you are a decent person. Because I don't think yeah, anyone likes, you know, the cold call, hey, give me a story. It's just, it just doesn't work that way at all. So it sounds like it's pretty time consuming. It is actually. Sometimes I feel, you know, what do they say, work to live or live to work. <laughs> Sometimes I feel it is live to work <laughs> in this business. It doesn't, there's not really a knockoff time I find in journalism, do you think? That is definitely true. You know, some days are quieter than others and you can take advantage of that, you know, um, maybe have a, a, an early minute or so. But And that's when you might ring a few of those contacts you haven't talked to in a while. <laughs> that's right, yeah, when you've got a bit of free time, catch up for coffees. Um, but, yeah, it is long hours. I was in Broken Hill, actually, for 7.30 last week and we're talking about early starts, 12-hour days. But they're great days. They're fulfilling days. Um, but, yeah, just be prepared to work hard. And was that great to be able to go back out there to, uh, and meet some of those contacts you haven't seen for a while? Yeah, well, we're following the journey of one pastoralist out there and we last met him a year ago. So it was actually great to get back to his property to see how much it had changed. It, he's had a little rain, which is good. He needs much more, though. One of the funny things was, though, I did actually um, meet the latest journalist from ABC while I was up there. We were just having a bit of a chat and they were like, oh, when were you up here? And I was like, oh, <laughs> over a decade ago. And you could see the looks on on their faces <laughs> and it made me think wow I am getting old <laughs> ah, so um, tell us a bit about these fantastic stories that you've become well known for the last couple of years Angelique um, because of course a lot of students maybe on the east coast wouldn't be familiar with them which I think is a shame and that's why I want to bring South Australian uh, stories and highlight them for the, in this podcast so one particularly was the Oakden uh, scandal that was uh, Sounds like you were a bit ahead of your time there before this investigation into the the broader Royal Commission into aged care as well. Yeah, the Oakden scandal was one of those strange stories that, um, uh, yeah, once you started digging into it, it was... It, it was a bit of a puzzle, like the pieces started to fit together and you could build on it. But it started, I'll just kind of go mm. chronologically. So it started out with a colleague of mine, Nicola Gage. She um, had spoken to the, the community visitor who is an um, independent position here in South Australia that goes around and visits government aged care facilities and other uh, disability care services and so forth. And there had been some complaints from one family about their 
well, Barb Spriggs, that was her, the, the woman's name, her husband, uh, he had dementia, a very severe form of dementia. She was very concerned because he'd been overdosed and actually had to be rushed to hospital and he had some bruises on his legs as well. So she wasn't happy with his care. Nicola Gage was able to build up a relationship with Barbara Spriggs and she spoke to the ABC about her concerns and that was something that didn't happen overnight. Barbara Spriggs, you know, first thing that sprung to her mind was not going to the media. But Nicola... And she was afraid. Yeah, she was afraid, mm. yeah. She knew that it wasn't right, mm. what happened to her husband, but she was afraid. You know, most people don't want to have their face all over the mm. TV. They don't want to speak out publicly. They want justice, but, you know, they don't see themselves as, you know, someone who's going to speak out in the media. But she decided that Nicola obviously spoke to her about, you know, this is something that, you know, the public needs to know about. And so she got the courage up and um, and spoke out. But it was from there um, that I got involved because through my political contacts, and it, it was one of those stories, and this is probably another bit of advice I'd have, is trust your gut. You know, when something seems off, you know, dig a little deeper. If you think the answers aren't there and the questions need to be asked, ask the questions. But I remember watching Nicola's story and thinking, this doesn't seem like a one-off. Do you know what I mean? Like... I just had a feeling that if this this is happening to this man, Bob Spriggs, is it happening to other people? So it sounds like your gut feeling is pretty important with these developing stories. Definitely with investigative journalism, yeah. And I, I, I trust my gut a lot and I think that's what you need to do. And don't just accept things at face value at all. You know, dig and dig and dig and persevere would be my recommendation. But a contact of mine did basically confirm the fact that it wasn't isolated. Mm-hmm. And so from there we... We happily got some leaked documents and some other things. We were able to, you know, scour the internet. Um, Google is a wonderful tool for journalists. A lot of stuff is on the internet. Don't in, and don't underestimate it, hey? And don't underestimate Facebook as well. <laughs> the amount of things and people I've found through Facebook. I, I, you know, I've approached a lot of people through Facebook, so it's, it's a really fantastic journalism tool. Like I said, it was a bit of a puzzle, and as we went on, you know, month by month, we put the pieces of the puzzle together and found out that there was systemic abuse and neglect at this aged care facility. And then that became an overall story, or, or how did you wrap it up from there? So we you could see that pattern quite clearly. Yeah, so we probably had a little bit of a focus on 7pm TV news, mm. but we did cover all platforms, so radio and online as well. Gosh. That must have taken a bit of planning. Well, it was great. And that was, this is another thing I'll say, Mm. is that you might have a great story that you might think, I've worked really hard on this and I want to order myself. But it is actually great to work with someone else Mm. on a story because you've got a different approach. You can bounce off each other. You can each handle different things. You each bring different skills to the story. So some of the biggest stories I've done, I've done in partnership with other people. And you both bring assets. So, yeah, so like I said, you know, one person might have done the original story, but it really does deliver the best outcome and the more wholesome story if you do are happy to work with someone else. Particularly when you're working in all these platforms, it would be pretty overwhelming for one journo to take that on, I imagine. That's right. And it can come 
all-consuming. And sometimes as well, you don't want to get tunnel vision as well, mm. you know. That, that is why it's great to have another person and you can chat and, like I said, bounce off each other. That's really valuable. And so it sounds like you almost look back and then before you know it, you've got six months of investigative pieces. Mm. Is that almost how these investigations evolve? Well, I think we counted up in the end and we, we did about 25 stories, I think. And they were, they were stories with new angles, fresh angles, um, you know, based on, like I said, leaked documents which showed that, you know, abuse went back so many years. Then this is the other thing that happens too. Once you do a story and ABC, especially online, puts a, if you know more, contact us. And that opened up a huge number of doors. Mm-hmm. So we had, once we did a couple of stories and people could obviously see that we were following this issue very closely, we had people approach us. So important to get the support of your superiors in that sense too and your your editors, your chiefs of staff to give you that support at various times to go further. That's true, yes. Yeah. We did have, I guess, a strategy that, you know, mm. we weren't going to let this go we, we knew that there was something more to this. We were going to keep digging. And, yeah, and so we did have... There was a lot of collaboration in the end. But, yeah, we, we had a number of families send emails in and say, well, this happened to my family member or I really want to talk to you. And that delivers more stories. But, of course, if you don't do that original story, you're not going to get those sorts of follow-ups. So, some, like I said, sometimes it just... Things just evolve naturally. It doesn't all start out wonderful from the get-go. And I think it's important to point out too, Angelique, you were still doing your daily requirements, of course, and filing on other issues as well. Yeah, so we didn't work on this every single day, but, yeah, the support came from our bosses that we, you know, we would say, hey, we we need a good couple of hours to work on this. Do you mind if we just, you know, sit Mm. down and concentrate? And we had their full backing, and that's what you need because there are, you know big demands the daily news cycle these days and it often is hard to find that extra bit of time to concentrate on 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 something um so you do need the support of management say you know what yep no don't worry about the daily stuff today you go and you know maybe if you don't nothing comes to fruition today fine but it may something may come of it in a week or two weeks. And so your Journalist of the Year award for that year, was it mainly uh, recognising that work or there were other stories as well? Yeah, it was mainly for that mm. work. And that was actually, uh, there was a bit of cross crossover because I finished in news and then obviously mm. started in the, the 7.30 gig. And, yeah, did have done a, a range of different stories for 7.30. Obviously, um, when I was doing politics, that was the focus. But now... Um, yeah, my kind of um, have a yeah, I cover a huge range of uh, areas and, and issues. And I think it's a big compliment uh, as as well the, the award coming for you in a completely different role, essentially, Angelique. Now and the different stories that you were doing for seven thirty. Can you tell us about the ones that got you the recognition for the award this year? Um, so uh, there were a few different ones. Um, uh, uh, one of them was I actually did um, a three part series, I guess you could say, on mm-hmm. pet food. And that was sparked by, you might remember, the megaesophagus outbreak. Mm. We had a number of dogs um, contract this debilitating disease, which can lead to them being uh, put down. It basically um, makes them not 
able to swallow properly. Swallow. It's quite. Mm. It, it's quite an awful condition, mm. and it turned out to be linked um, to a pet food. There were suspicions that it was linked to um, a product called Advanced Dermacare, and Melbourne Uni has done quite a lot of research in the area to um, mm. say that it is. They believe it is linked to the food. This one was a different one because the victims weren't human, yet their owners were just as passionate as a husband, wife, you know, speaking about a loved one that had been wronged or, you know, they were looking for answers. Why? How could this happen? So that investigation, it started off with that outbreak of megaesophagus, but it turned into um, an investigation into the pet food industry, which is self-regulated, which a lot of people find hard to believe that there are no laws governing the manufacture of pet food. Obviously, people spend big dollars on, on pet food. You know, there are fancy labels with coconut oil, with chia seeds, you know, you name it. You know, um, But at the end of the day, you don't really know what's in your pet food and you don't really know the standards to which it's been made. So this outbreak led to calls for um, greater scrutiny on the industry. And it kind of, you looked and it, it turned out there were some things like plastics and metals being found in pet food. Um, materials that would in human food prompt a recall to alert the wider public but in the pet food industry there's no need to issue a recall because there are no laws surrounding that so did that surprise you it did actually just because it's such a big industry Mm. billions of dollars worth um Mm. this uh, this industry is worth billions of dollars that prompted a senate review a senate inquiry and currently the government is undertaking its own review. And the interesting thing about that is uh, the big manufacturers, including um, the manufacturer of Advanced Dermacare, has conceded that we do need to go down a regulatory route. So they see the owners want this. Uh, pet owners, you know, love their animals and uh, they want to see some official oversight. So it's not in place yet, but it's something that looks likely to happen in the future. I find that interesting, Angelique, too, because I remember from our times working together in the newsroom that you were quite an animal lover. Um, Do you think that that almost... I suppose what I'm thinking is, does that hone your sense of looking for stories that our interests as a journalist can actually be an asset, you know, that that we don't have to try and be completely unbiased all the time, I suppose, that actually using that interest can be useful? Yeah, I um, I definitely have an interest in public health, whether that's human or mm. animal, I guess. And I kind of feel for me, it, it's 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 things that catch the eye. Like, do you know what I mean? It doesn't necessarily have to be something I know a lot about, but often there might be a small article that points towards something that I think that's a bit weird or odd. I'm going to look into that a bit further. Um, so you don't feel you have to be an expert? No, you, I know, and it's... When you do a story, you probably become an expert by the end of it, but you definitely don't have to be an expert at, at the start. And I go back to the gut feeling thing. It's always, mm. I, and a lot of, always followers as, as well would be another tip of mine. Um, you know, there might be a, a, a story that seems like a one hit, like, you know, it's hit the headlines and, okay, move on. But often they're not, you know, dig a little deeper and... It's, it's bigger. It's part of a bigger issue. And um, one that springs to mind, um, and 
this fits in probably a little bit with the public health aspect I was going, uh, I mentioned previously, mm. was when I was in um, the state political round, we got called to an opposition press conference, an opposition liberal press conference at a train substation. And what it was about was asbestos being found in the substation. And the thing that was interesting about that is what was that it turned out to be asbestos that had been imported in building products. And so obviously, as you can imagine, the, the Liberal opposition was attacking the government. How could the government let this happen? Government needs to answer questions, which was all fair enough. But from that, I thought, hang on a moment, asbestos is banned. The, man, the manufacture of asbestos is banned. How are we getting, and, and asbestos um, uh, you know, in building products these days is banned. How's this getting into Australia? And it turned out that a lot of this stuff was coming in unknowingly, um, a lot of it from China, in building products. Companies would be buying material, being assured that it was asbestos-free, but asbestos is perfectly legal in China, and for one reason or another, it was being put into building products and coming into Australia. So that in itself created... Um, uh, I did a series of articles um, and TV pieces uh, on that subject, which led to scrutiny on Australian border force. Well, what were they doing at the border? How many shipments were they inspecting? What more could they do to stop this happening? And they did crack down on the area. So that was one that kind of started off... Well, it's such a well-known story now. How yeah. exciting to look back and go, that that's something you really started as well. You know, and I think sometimes as journalists, it's good for us to, to look back and see where these stories started from yeah. and, and, and led to. Yeah, Particularly when I think... You know, you've really got to trust yourself and your judgment at times when no one else is really covering that. And you mm. think it, it looks so obvious in mm. some ways. That is it? true. <laughs> and it's funny. And sometimes you do look for support from, um, you know, whether it's another newspaper mm. or a TV station to justify what you're doing. But at the same time, I would also say, don't worry about if no one else is following it, because then that gives you extra time <laughs> to break mm. new ground. And to get that edge. That's, <laughs> That's right. right. Mm. Um, you don't want someone on your back because um, with that asbestos yarn, uh, eventually, because then it was found in buildings in Brisbane and Perth, the Australian actually ended up doing some work on it. And I did actually find I was competing with them and, and you know, we were trying to break angles and it, it became a little bit difficult. So, yeah, so don't worry if no one's following because it might take a bit of time, but if it's a worthy issue, it will get the response it needs eventually. Sounds like you need a bit of courage to be a journalist, Angelique. Yeah, you definitely do. You do need to definitely back yourself, but... Again, I go back to this gut mm. gut instinct. I really think if you know that there's something not quite right and it needs to be pursued, do it. And you can develop that from a young age, from those rural times or wherever you kick off as a journalist, you can trust yeah. that. Yeah, and I kind of think the other thing I would say too is I'm obviously looking and my focus now, I love doing investigative work, but you don't have to be an investigative journalist. Mm. And we don't all want to be the same, let's be honest, because then... And the newsroom would be very boring if we Wouldn't were. it be very yeah. boring? And the so, bulletins would be very boring. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I'm lucky that that motivates me. But at the same time, if you've got an interest in business or mm. politics... Like, I love doing politics, but some of my colleagues, Nick Harmson being one of them, he is an absolute political animal. Like, he was, like, brilliant. Politics is him. I loved it, but not to that degree, if you know what I mean. It's good like, to go into it and then to leave it. Yeah, yep. Exactly. So, And you find your niche, I think, in this yeah. business, you know. And like I said, it doesn't have to be investigative. might be politics, might be business, might be presenting. If you want to be a presenter, 
follow your dreams. Mm. And I just to wrap up to Angelique, thank you again for joining us on Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project. Uh, I wonder, on reflection, how you cope with uh, the Australian uh, regulatory environment, particularly in, in this era of media raids and things like that. Has that, particularly as an investigative journalist, has that given you a bit of a, a chill as well? Or how do you reflect on that? I do worry about whistleblowers because they're taking a big risk, let's be honest. And I do worry that anyone who thinks they know something that they want the public to know and that they want to use a journalist to get that out to the public, I worry that they may be scared off doing that into the future. That's my biggest concern because it does take a lot of bravery and courage for someone to speak out at great potential personal cost to themselves, whether it be, you know, they might lose their job or family, friends. Um, and, you know, and, and they are putting themselves out in the public and, and, you know, their name is forever out there in, you know, the world of the internet and, and so forth. So I really do worry that it may put off people um, speaking to us in the future because that is, you know, a huge part of, of what we do. We are a mechanism to, you know, bring out information that needs to be out there in the public realm. And how important is that role for people who are sceptical about the role of the fourth estate, about journalism in our society and take it for granted a bit? Yeah, I, I kind of feel sometimes as a journalist you can never do anything right. <laughs> but that's okay, you can't please everyone. Um, yeah, you know, we are all kind of um, judged the same, I think, which is a bit of a shame. Whether you're good or bad. Yeah, yeah. You, know, and, and, you know, I don't want to say that, yeah, there are people, you know, or, you know, certain networks that are worse or better than others and, and things like that. But I do find that people just have, a lot of people have a bit of a stereotype of a journalist and, yeah, you you believe truly that you're not that but they they believe you are but that's one fantastic thing about working for the ABC is that we have such a, a proud tradition here and we can approach things you know really rigorously and impartially and robustly and it's always the public interest front and mind and you know as long as we focus on that I believe you can't go wrong. And it sounds like without that, we wouldn't have these stories exposed that you've been able to bring to light, Angelique. And that's why we're celebrating fantastic journos like yourself in this podcast. Thank you so much again for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to wrap up with or to, to pass on on this wonderful career that you've established? Oh, goodness. Just never give up, um, and especially uh, in terms of um, getting a job out of whether you come from uni or, or, or wherever. Uh, and it might not specifically be a journalism degree, but um, it's hard to get that foot in the door. Uh, but once you got that foot in the door, you're well on your way. And, and as well, you can't achieve everything in five minutes. They call it a career for a reason. My dad's great, you know, with sales. But, and he, he's always, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So just keep that in mind. Um, yeah, don't feel disheartened if, you know, you have job knockback after job knockback after job knockback. If you um, stay committed, you'll get there. Thank you, Angelique, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Nance. That was Angelique Dinellan, the South Australia reporter for ABC's 7.30, speaking to me for The Journo Project. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, a.k.a. The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.